Next Chapter Podcasts. Are you guys ready for the greatest opening line in song history? Hi there, your friendly neighborhood. Say this won't take you for a ride. It's Sucker by Motha Hoople from the 1972 album All the Young Dudes. It's also number 484 out of 500 on The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, Fleece Army? I hope you guys are drenched from head to toe in the most expensive of all fleece material. You know I am, because I am your king. Also, if it's poor fleece, if it's like not good quality fleece, that's fine too. Fleece is the shit. If you buy it from either fucking, you know, Macy's, a Macy's fleece is just as good as a Kohl's fleece. And I hope you guys are having a good week. And I hope you guys are enjoying my journey and your journey through Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 albums list. From Five Honey, working our way down to Numero Uno. Last week's episode with Joe List, lots of people loved it. And thank you for showing your support on social media and telling me how much you dug it. Speaking of reaching out, I want to spread the word of the 500, okay? So I got this idea from a buddy and I fucking love it. Give me 24 hours on your social media. Give me a 24-hour ad on your Instagram stories. Here's what I want you guys to do. Whichever way you're listening to the podcast, pull that way up on your phone, push play, and then I want you to take a screenshot of you listening to the 500. I want you to tag me, at Josh Adam Myers, and then hashtag the 500 podcast. And you can also put hashtag Fleece Army. Give me a 24-hour ad on your social media. That would mean the world to me. Your friends are going to ask, Who the, what's, what the fuck is this shit about Fleece Army? And what's the 500? And then you can just, just tell them everything. So 24-hour ad on your Instagram stories. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500. Tag me. At Josh Adam Myers, and then hashtag the 500 podcast, hashtag Fleece Army. Let's get the word out, everybody. This week's guest is a legend in the world of rock and roll. Honest to God, when I was a teenager and I used to watch MTV, this dude was my favorite VJ. It is the one and only Matt Pinfield. Former host of 120 Minutes on MTV2. The coolest of all the VJs. I love him to death, guys. And we had a fantastic discussion. You might know him for being on Lithium on Sirius XM. You might know uh, that he is probably the most world-renowned encyclopedia of music. And we're going to dig deep into this record. Don't forget to listen to the end of the podcast where we spotlight a new artist that was directly influenced by Mott the Hoople. Also, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, 
go to our website, the500podcast.com. With that being said, here we go with number 484 out of 500 with all the young dudes by the Matt Pinfield, Matt Pinfield, Matt Pinfield, Matt Pinfield. You didn't really join in. I was kind of hoping. All right. Oh, I would. I would. I would. <laughs> I was kind of waiting to see where it went. I was really actually entertained I by I, that. Obviously, you can see that I was trying to write it at the exact minute. I was yeah. going to go with Mama's little uh, jewel, and I was like, maybe, uh, you know what? I'll go with the hit. I'll go with that. Dude, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's so great to finally sit down and talk to you uh, because I, I feel like I've known you without knowing you for like uh, going on like 20 some odd years when I remember seeing you on MTV and 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 just uh, for so long. So this is kind of surreal to be able to sit down with you. Also, you're the first non-comedian I've had on the podcast, so that's that's a fucking huge honor, dude. I mean, it is. It, well, it's a huge honor for me to be here. That's it's great. I was I, really excited when you asked me. I, I just love the concept of what you're doing. Thank well. you, brother. Also, this is you and I have almost the exact same voice sound. We do. You and I both sound like human garbage disposals. We it's certainly just, do. It's just like, all right, Matt. Like, but you guys are going to get confused. And I can sound like talking. you as well. I'm I can sound like you as well. I sound like you. I try and do that as well. So here we go. So tell me. So tell me. Like, I know you are, are an audiophile. Like, how how is your how is your musical taste grown over the years? What were your obsession bands growing up? And how did you get to to be uh, so knowledgeable about music? Like, where did it start? Well, yeah, I mean. It, was really crazy because it started for me uh, i remember back to being a three-year-old kid and kind of sitting rocking back and forth in in front of a cheap uh like stacked 45 player that would play uh, the 45s we would call them little little records yeah uh you know my my dad was a school teacher and my mom at the time was a stay-at-home mom they had three kids uh, we didn't have a lot of money, and we lived in New Jersey at that point in a town called Denellen. It's the town where, if you saw in Whiplash, where uh, Miles Teller flips his car. And, oh yeah, and like he's go- he's bloody reaching for his drumsticks in that in that movie. Oh yeah, that's literally he flips the car. Two houses down from the house I lived in. No shit. Before, which blew me away when I saw the movie, you know? And Wait, so I, you're like watching the film like, oh, oh my going, God, that's, oh my God, that's my I, friend Jem's house. Yeah, Holy shit. I lived there. I was like, oh, <laughs> I lived there until I was about four. And then I moved, you know, to a town called East Brunswick in New Jersey. And I guess you being from the Mid-Atlantic and that area, and you were close enough to Baltimore and to D.C. Yeah. I mean, we were near major cities and I was... Right in the center of New Jersey, so you could go see live shows in Philly. You could go sh- see live shows in New York, and there were great venues, uh, you know, in New Jersey as well. But I was obsessed from the time I was a kid with radio because I loved rock and roll, and I just loved hearing music and discovering new music. Yeah, and then I got obsessed with records and you know reading the liner notes and the covers. But for me, it was very emotional because it was always about the song. It was always about the music first. It wasn't like you know, like baseball stats. Like, I'm like, well, 
You know, he Steve Lillywhite produced this many records in yeah. 1981. Whatever, no, it, it was it was a, an emotional connection and love for the music from the very beginning. So, what were the bands that that, that touched you? Well, I mean, you know, obviously there were things. Uh, you know, until I was in about seventh grade, it was things that you know you would expect i mean I, I got great records and heard great things from my older brother and sister and i would listen to radio but of course i love the beatles i love the who you know i love things you would expect you know what i mean and, and all the different things that were going on in top 40 radio uh in the late 60s and early 70s but i when i discovered uh david bowie uh that was a big thing for me because I got a, I had bought the Diamond Dogs album uh, and because I heard Rebel Rebel and I went well, you know this what is this it says Hot Tramp I mean it it sounded like it was about sex and I was yeah. like you know I'm like 12 year old kid and I'm like wow uh, this is for me because yeah, you know dude. you're you know you're all of a sudden you you, you can come you know you're uh, you realize that <laughs> that thing between your legs is 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 doing something this else makes me feel good exactly <laughs> so anything that had a bit of a sexual connotation to it you were you were immediately attracted to. But uh, and then I realized by listening to Bowie and having that album that there was a whole other world out there. But I mean, even from early years, I would always like I'd listen to what they were playing on Top 40 Radio, but I would go to the rock stations even as a young kid because I wanted to hear more music. I didn't want to get stuck with this all the same stuff. So, you know, and plus, you know, I had an older brother who had records by the Velvet Underground and a, and a sister who had Doors records. And that's how I discovered so many different things. And then. You know, every, as soon as I can mow a lawn and deliver a newspaper, I use all of that buy, money oh, to buy records. I am the same fucking person. It was, I can still pin, I used to listen to DC 101 growing up. Um, I was obsessed with Guns N' Roses. I still remember the, I can hear, the, I remember the exact moment they played Appetite for Destruction. Because all I would do is just put on DC 101 every night. And that was like, they played that full record. And from that minute on, that was the first like, I would. I remember I actually stole money from my dad to buy Appetite, and then from that point on, it was just buying Iron Maiden and Motley Crue. All of my money went to two things: it went to uh, rock and roll cassettes and Gary Larson Far Side cartoon books. That right. was the all I spent my money on, which is great. Um, so, how did you experience Mott the Hoople? Like, what is well, your you first? Know, you know, but I mean, obviously, the Bowie connection was a big deal for sure. me. Um, and you know, Ziggy Stardust was an album that um, was, you know, really opened the door for the artist that he loved. As soon as he got, you know, a kind of superstardom, it was still in a cult level. I mean, it wasn't in a pop level yet, but in the rock world, Bowie was, of course, a force to be reckoned with. So what he did, as soon as he broke through with Ziggy Stardust was decided to help all the artists that he loved so much. So yeah. Mott the Hoople were going to break up before they recorded all yes, the Yes, they were. They were, you know, they were on Atlantic Records. Um, they, had, they had a big cult following, I guess. But <laughs> what ended up happening was they were about to break up, and Bowie convinced them not to. And Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople told me uh, that, you know, Bowie came in and literally sat on a rug, cross-legged with an acoustic guitar. and. Yep. First offered him Suffrage at City. And they turned that down. They turned that down. And then uh, You're literally going through yeah. all the facts that I did like yeah. hours of research on. You're <laughs> yeah. nailing in the first like yeah. five minutes. You know what? Well, it's unbelievable <laughs> because it was such an important record for me and an important band. Um, you know, I loved the bands that were ver that were more flamboyant in that period of time. Of course, my, my musical taste was so diverse because my brother, when I was nine, bought me American Beauty from the Grateful Dead. And he also bought me John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band album, which is an incredible record. That, yeah. You know, um, and then, you know, I would 
but I when I discovered Aerosmith and I discovered Kiss's early records and I loved and obviously Bowie and then I you know discovered some of the English stuff like T-Rex and Sweet and early Queen I kind of I like those very in your face kind of bands at that time and you know but it, but it didn't mean I didn't like like I said, the dead and the band and things sure. like that. Sure. Yeah, because I was just a sponge. You know, I mean, I, you're I, wearing a tool shirt for Christ's yeah. sake. I mean, obviously yeah. it's just yeah. like you're you're saying all these bands. I think that's kind of what not just what the podcast is about, but I, but it's like we there's there's so many people, like I said, back in the day I was set in my ways. But now, I mean, I have a Miles Davis tattoo. I listen to if a Katy Perry song sounds good, I'm gonna listen to it. And it's just I have there's people that are just drawn to the sound and we have our like genre that we're like oh well i really like brit rock right now or i really like hair metal bands but music just touches us in so many ways that you can you know still listen to t-rex and still listen to the grateful dead it's just you have that that open ear and then i was hugely into all the punk stuff i mean when punk came along yeah i love that very very much when you say punk you mean like, like I mean, sex pistols I mean, ramones, ramones yeah okay. all that stuff Ramo- the first wave like ramones sex pistols generation x the buzzcocks you know what i mean yeah. the jam i loved and they were like more of a mod band and but I love that whole first wave of new wave and punk stuff. I was so into it. And even the pop, power pop stuff like Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, everything. I mean, it's yeah. just, I embraced that in a big way. It became a big part of my Where life. Where are as you well. now? So do you, do you listen to everything still now? Or yeah, is there I listen like, to everything. You know, it's well, really. It's, your job is basically is, is music. So you definitely are. are have knowledge about the bands that are coming out now you still keep up with everything right always i mean you know for me it's really important for me to um i just have this hunger and passion for new music um so i'm always going to see shows with new artists here in town now that i live in la and by the way i love living in los angeles let me just make, make that very clear because when i lived in new jersey or new york you still had to go to jersey or brooklyn for shows oh yeah dude. so it's such a pain in the ass to get around don't get me wrong i mean i love my new york history i worked in that city for 20 something years i grew up in jersey but i couldn't wait to get to los angeles Fuck yeah I, I felt lucky that i grew up in the dc area i had the 930 club which was and jeremiah uh, our mutual friend was my like go to shows buddy. Like we yeah. saw My Morning Jacket together when they were like nobodies. We saw uh, I remember the stills we had this like, you know, during like the second coming of of what I want to call I guess downplayed music when the Strokes and the Stills and Interpol and all those bands started coming out. I mean, we were just living at 930 Club. And yeah. I mean, being out here in LA, I should go see more live music. I mean, I'm doing stand-up every night, and it's rare that I do still get to go to shows. To be honest, I think the last show I saw live, fuck, man, Profits of Rage. You know, I worked at MTV because, you know, right when I got there, that Rage album, first Rage album came out, and I was playing it on the radio at a radio station I ran yeah. in New Jersey. Uh, it was one of the first 13 alternative stations that were a commercial station in the country because... Back then, it was before everything blew up. So we were there when the Nirvana, when the Nirvana thing exploded. Yeah. Before that, I mean, the, the hugest bands in the format were REM, The Cure, and you know, and, and Depeche and Smiths, and all great bands that I love very much. But um, you know, when the Nirvana thing came along, and it really all of a sudden it exploded out of Seattle. Then there were like fifty alternative radio stations as opposed to thirteen. So, you know. We were we were early in on all that. In fact, I, I added that song uh, "Sliver" before 
uh, that album came out. You know, I was already playing that. I knew Nirvana were an important band at that point. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I added the record and played it in power. So by the time Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, I just saw what it did, not only through MTV, but through radio and all the other program directors who were doing what I was doing, or music directors at radio stations. And they were like, everybody was just, there was this groundswell of people that were, there was so much excitement around sure. it. It was really, it was really great. Terrific. Well, let's know? dive into this record. So yeah. our album is number 484 out of 500. It's the 1972 <laughs> album, All the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople. It's produced by David Bowie, who we were talking about, recorded at Olympic and Trident Studios in london all right so tell me exactly how old are you what is going on the first time you hear this record all right the first time i hear this record actually um is in 1973 so i'm 11 going on 12 you know i'm, a, I'm uh you know i was born in the early 60s uh in the beginning of the 60s so um you know i was just hungry for new things and it was it was a tv commercial believe it or not that had an ad for that Dick Clark was doing for the Columbia House Record Club. Oh, I remember that. Was and, that the one you paid yeah. like you paid like a dollar and you got thirteen yeah. records? Yeah, and, exactly. And then you just never buy any others. Never buy any that? others. And then you know, I know, I know so many people. I think you know, uh, Kid Rock. He actually will admit that he financed his first twelve inch <laughs> by ordering like. Like five hundred under under sixty different names, like yeah. he would just keep sending them to his house, yeah. and then he sold all those so he could get the money to print up his first twelve. Fuck yeah, dude, which is a genius that is move, a genius idea. I think everybody screwed over the Columbia House Record Club everybody at least once. Did. Well, they were idiots. They were like yeah. they were like tape a penny to this little <laughs> thing that you got in Hip Parader. You send it in, and then I, you know, it's you, they're like you have to buy thirteen more, and I was like, go fuck yourself. I'm nine years old. I have no money. And they would sit, keep sending them to you because you wouldn't send the thing back. Yep. And you just keep them and not pay for them anyway. So was, wait, so was Mott one of those records that you got from there? No. Okay. Was, I actually went out and bought it um, you know, with lawnmower money because uh, you know, um, I heard the song All the Young Dudes on this TV commercial. And Dick Clark was going, join the Columbia House Record Club. And I remember all the songs that were in the commercial. It was Mountains, Mississippi Queen. So you heard that cowbell. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Keep going, keep going. It was awesome. And then uh, I think the other one was Edgar Winter Group. Like, come on and take a free ride. And, you know, Frankenstein. So it was around that period of time. Um, and so I remember loving hearing that chorus of all the young dudes. And so discovering Bowie around the same time and then going and getting uh, the Mata Hoople record. I learned so much more about it as time went on, um, I, and I became a big fan of theirs. And I love this album as much as the one that came right after it um, in 73, which was the album called Mott, really important records. Um, you know, this, this record, for me, what's really crazy is I was already aware of who Lou Reed was because my, uh, you know, my brother's wife had the Velvet Underground records. It was really weird. Like, the records that a lot of people didn't discover until they were in college, like Big Star and Velvet Underground, were things that I stumbled upon. So that was an accident discovering them and then, you know, mowing more lawns to go out and buy one of their <laughs> albums. But I love the Mott record, and, it, and it's really interesting historically if you look at this record because... Uh, again, this was a band that was on the verge of completely throwing in the towel. Uh, very, very frustrated. Uh, and Bowie doing what we said before, going and playing uh, the two songs for them. Them not wanting to do Suffragette City, which is also a classic Bowie song yeah. from Ziggy Stardust. This record 
This is the first time I had heard it. I had known all the young dudes. I thought it was a Bruce Dickinson song because that was how I was so obsessed with Iron Maiden as a kid. And then when he had that solo record, he covered this. And that's how I heard this song the first time. And then, of course, you know, I find out that there is this band that really wrote it and blah, blah, blah. But like the, I was just like, I was like, oh, I was like, you mean Bruce Dickinson didn't write this genius song? So that was the only song off this record that I knew ahead of time. And let me tell you, I've been doing this now for, I think, about two and a half months. This is my favorite record that I've done since I've started going through this list. This is this album connected with me. I think it's fantastic. I mean, just not just lyrically and musically, but it's like emotionally. Like when I got to Sea Diver, the first listen of this record all the way through, I started weeping. And I go, yeah. I deal with a lot of stuff. I cry a lot. The fans know that. But. This song touched me so much, and it really just starts right at the beginning because that was the first song that I knew, Sweet Jane. It opens with that, like you said, a Lou Reed song. Uh, this is, They're doing a, a cover, basically, of, of a Velvet Underground song, which is a ballsy way to start the record, just do somebody yeah. else's song right off the jump. Yeah, I think it was because of Bowie's suggestion. Bowie, at, at that year, uh, like I said, all these band artists that he had loved their careers were really about to hit the toilet. Uh, one was Iggy Pop, so he did the Raw Power album. Iggy was still really on a self-destructive course, he and the Stooges. And that record, some people like the original mix. It's very yeah. tinny and high-end. Um, other people like some of the remixes that were done, but it's still like a classic record. But when he got behind Lou Reed with Transformer, he had been such a big fan. So there you go with Walking the Wild Side and Vicious and Satellite Love. Perfect day. So... He, he helped make these three iconic records, Bowie, just out of trying to do the right thing by these people whose music he loved. I love that. Isn't that, isn't I, that amazing? I love that. I love, if, I, if I couldn't love Bowie even more just from the movie Labyrinth, I love him <laughs> yeah. so much. But Sweet Jane, I'm listening to this. I'm like, all right, how is this different than the original Velvet Underground? Well, it's a little bit faster. It's got the heavy cowbell, which I'm a fan of. But... By listening to the record and breaking this down, I started going through Sweet Jane. And uh, from reading on the internet, uh, it's about correcting the misplaced notion among the protest kids that prior generations were trapped in society shackles and that only the current generation knows how to live free of them. So I was going through some sample lyrics, but anyone who ever had a heart, they wouldn't turn around and break it. And anyone who ever played a part, they wouldn't turn around and hate it. And that's people that might oppose one thing or another, but they can respect it if that's what they're a part of. So going through this, let me ask you, what are some things that the previous generations uh, that did that you would see within yourself that your parents are like, how are you kind of keeping that that prior generation alive i think that it's very one of those things that when you're very young and naive uh, you know you basically i mean your world is your bubble i mean you, you know you look at you look at things like everything you know the people before you don't really know what's going on yeah it's all alien you know we get older we start to res not only respect our elders sometimes not all the time but we start to respect them and our parents and then we start to see things that are part of culture um that we realize are really valuable and good and that we can get something from that past culture. But but I think the young people have a tendency 
to just see what's right in front of them because it's just a matter of I think age too. You know, you know how when we were when we were kids growing up, like two years was a lifetime. Oh and, and, yeah, and how dude. much your musical taste would change and how many new artists you would discover or you find a new girlfriend or you change a group of friends or you know you, you just you continue to develop and discover new things. So that's your world and that's the world that you're familiar with. Sure. Uh, so. I just think it's it's one of those great songs that Lou was such a, a great storyteller. You know, not only did Lou Reed in writing a song like Sweet Jane, you know, tell a great story, but he was also so, so gritty and about the street. I mean, the first guy to really write a song straight out about love affair with heroin, like a song. Oh, like yeah. That. I think it was called heroin. It wasn't was. It? Yeah. <laughs> and then the one about copying. He it didn't called, hide it. Yeah. And then there was the one about copying it, waiting for waiting for the man, waiting for my man. All right. Let me ask you this. Which one's your favorite version? Oh, the Mott the Hoople? Or yeah. The it's the Mott the Hoople one. And I'll tell you why. why. I mean, the the Velvet is a close second. But I will. But I even though I had like the, the, the third Velvet Underground album when I was a little kid, I didn't really discover Loaded. Until the album with that on it, sure. Until after I heard the Mata Hoople, and the other thing I love about the Mata Hoople version of Sweet Jane is I just think it sounds so cool. And you're right; it's some of the best use of cowbell of all time. Love cowbell; (laughs) it's the best cowbell. Loves cowbell. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Yeah, yeah you know what I mean? It, it, this, it's some of the best use of Calvo. It's fantastic. The other thing I got to say about this version of, of Sweet Jane is the recording of it. You know, it, it has Bowie listed as producer, but Bowie was there... I'm sure he's the one who suggested this song because he loved Lou too and yeah. wanted to really spread the love for Lou. But Mick Ronson, Bowie's guitar player, who was with him in the Spiders from Mars through like from Hunky Dory uh, through the Pinups album, um, he was the guy in the studio when Bowie was recording those albums who was this not only incredible guitar player, yeah. but he was like a sponge and he picked up from Ken Scott, this record producer all his production way of, of producing a record. So they were in there together, Mick and uh, and Bowie. He was his right hand. And Mick was the one who knew how to mimic the sounds that were on Ziggy Stardust and Hunky Dory, those incredibly crisp acoustic guitar sounds. Sure. Acoustic over electric. He, there was a way that he would record where, and Bowie told me this story himself, how when he recorded those records, one of the things Ken Scott said, he would put a microphone right up to the acoustic guitar. So literally... Uh, you know, it would be right up to it. And then he'd have one 15 feet back in the room. So you would get that crisp sound up top, but you would also have this kind of airy room sound. Sure. So it, you felt like the acoustic guitar was right next to you, and that's why it sounds so good on the Ziggy Stardust album. But also on this, so they used that technique 
on Sweet Jane to start the record. Plus, the drumming is so good. It's on fantastic. It. Yeah. And then going into Mama's Little Jewel, uh, the piano riff, the build. Peter, play a little bit of that in the background because this song is the shit. The song builds, as I was reading the lyrics, uh, I think it's about one of two things. It's either about a song about parents trying to calm down their rebellious teens, or it's about sex. Uh, I mean, Mama's Little Jewel, such a little fool, thinks she can learn all the answers. She don't want to feel. She just want to steal. Don't want to take any chances. I mean, and then you could go into the chorus. True when I hold you near. Well, I'm caught when I'm on the road. When I'm wearing my scorpion faces. When I come in the midnight sun. So what do you think is it about? Is this a song about sex or rebellion? I think it's about sex and it's about the young, the girl they're writing about, the young woman's rebellion. That's what I think it is. And yes, I fit- it's, that was we were, we were saying. It's kind <laughs> of a, it's kind of like not woman's lib, but I mean, it definitely has that kind of overtone. So continue what we're saying. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, this song is obviously, and this, he's touched on this more than once. On the fi- on the next album, there's a song called Wizkid, where he talks about, you know, this woman that he meets in New York City, and it's the same thing. It's really like a, almost a groupie lover, or like this kind of, yeah, like you said, women's lib, free love, free spirit lover. Yeah. Like the woman in Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. You know, like, you know, I once had a girl, or should I say she once had me. Same kind of thing. But he's also reflecting on, you know, her relationship. She's she's mama's girl. Mama and dad yeah. don't really know what she's doing. Sure. And this is And this is, and she, this is me here. And it's we're having a, a, a serious sexual relationship. And that was a, you know, there were a lot of overtones of that kind of songwriting in the history of rock and roll but definitely in like 72 73 with uh, with you know bowie do, you know doing things like hang on to yourself and all these everybody back then i mean rock and roll was about sex whether it was aerosmith or whether oh, it was yeah. van halen or it's, you know what i mean rock, <laughs> or guns and roses sex is about everything basically yes. yeah you know? what is the most ridiculous argument you've ever given to a woman as to why she should have sex with you do you have any have you ever had to like 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 wheel and deal, I you know I probably have, but uh, but it's probably I, I I'm assuming that since I'm an alcoholic, I was probably pretty drunk, um, and I still might have scored. I mean, I still might, but I would probably say something like, "Look, you and I love this. See, we love this song so much. You know, this this look, we are such kindred souls. You know, you love this Matahupal song as much Come as on. I do. Come on." Come on, you have I, to fuck I, me tonight. I, you know what's funny? You know what's funny? <laughs> what? Is that, is that like, because I haven't drank in 11, going on 12 years. When I drank, I got laid all the time. And I have no idea how. It would just be like my friends would ask me, so what happened to you last night? I was like, I got laid. How? And I'm like, I don't know. I was at Blockbuster Video. And then I was having sex. I have no idea where it came or, or, or what happened. But it, it's now that I've gotten sober... I have become a lot more particular 
Like I still, I actually, this is probably the longest streak I've ever gone without having sex. Four months. Yeah. But also, this could be about rebellion as well. How rebellious were you as a teenager? I was definitely rebellious. I mean, without a question. But we were, we were, we were young terrors. But I mean, I mean, that's that word I like to, uh, you know, I don't like to associate that with terrorism. Sure. But we were just. We were young kids. We wanted to drink. We wanted to get high. We wanted to get laid. We wanted to listen to rock and roll. Yeah. We wanted to stay out late. We wanted to do all those things. And I mean, this certainly was our identity. Rock and roll was a big part of our, our identity because, you know, we looked up to frontmen like Steven Tyler, who was always talking about sex. I mean, that was Bowie it. Bowie or, you know, I'm just using those as examples. Yeah. But we certainly, I mean, rock and roll and music in general, no matter whether it's rock or soul or whatever you like, hip hop, is really a part of your identity when you're growing up. It's, it's uh, you know, they say that when you're, you know, that period around like 13, 14, there's something about whatever you're listening to then that is really kind of sets the stage for who you are. Oh, I believe that. You know? I mean, I, 13, 14, I was, uh, I was probably the tail end of the, of the hair metal band. I think yeah, because I, I think it was in eighth grade, eighth or not, yeah, eighth grade when when uh, I heard Nevermind. But let's go into all the young dudes. Now this is the hit. Like I said, the first time I heard this song, it was the Bruce Dickinson version, and it's number two fifty six out of the greatest, the five hundred greatest songs of all time from Rolling Stone magazine. The opening guitar rift is so haunting. Peter, you're playing that now. And I heard that, the, like I said, I heard the first one, the Bruce Dickinson version. That was my intro. The lyrics haunting and probably one of the most beautiful note transitions in the chorus. Um, but just, you know, some of the lyrics that really have just just like grabbing a hold of me. It's uh, television man is crazy saying we're juvenile delinquent Rex. Oh man, I need TV when I got T-Rex. Sarcasm. I love yeah. fucking sarcasm. Because he loves T-Rex. I mean, and the thing yeah. was, he was a big fan of Mark Boland's. Um, in fact, you know, when uh, this is a fact that a lot of people don't know that when, Mar me. when Mark Boland died um, and, uh, you know, his he was in, they don't observe common law marriage, um, you know, in England. So uh, his son was really left with nothing. Uh, and his, his girlfriend, who was there driving the car the night that Mark Boland died, uh, when, he, when they hit the tree, um, Gloria Jones, who did the original Tainted Love, believe it or not. It's oh, just wow. a crazy story. But, but because of uh, Bowie really cared about Mark so much, do you know that Bowie paid for uh, Roland Boland, Mark Boland's son, paid for him to go away to private school and footed the bill for him so that he could like go away to school like his son, Zoe Bowie, who became the director, jo Duncan Jones. These are the greatest names I've ever yeah. heard. Roland uh, Bolin and, and Zoe, Zoe Bowie. Bowie. Hey, Jesus man, Christ. That, hey, that's the 1970s <laughs> for you. No, but it's, hey, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, at least, I mean, he cared so much about him. He took care of his son. Which, he seems he like a great yeah. guy. I mean, you know? you know, he's he's David fucking Bowie. Yeah, but I think, you know, the thing about this song is it's, it's a juxtaposition to what we were talking about in Sweet Jane about looking back and realizing that, you know, your your parents and the generations before you yeah. went, you know, had had things tough and but and you don't necessarily want to understand that. This is a direct thing saying that in all the young dudes that everything before us is not as cool and we've got our own things. And he obviously loves the Beatles and the Stones, Bo. Yeah, he, that's I mean, the, he, the sample <laughs> lyric is uh, and my brother's back at home with his Beatles and his Stones. We never got it off. 
on that. We never got off on that revolution stuff. What a drag. Too many snags. snags. And that's the differences between his brother's 60s music and the revolutionary music. And... Uh, and, and and now the 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 uh, dispirited tone of the seventies, and again, like that's Bowie's apocalyptic apocalyptic hangups that he has in Ziggy Stardust. It, it's incredible. So it's th- there are social barriers, but what social barriers have you faced in your career, and how have you broken through them? I mean, for me, it's really interesting because, you know, like I said, as a as a kid and a, and a teenager, I loved music from the very, very beginning uh, of being a kid. And then, you know, I did college radio, and it was right at the time where, you know, new wave punk and post-punk was happening. And, you know, I mean, you were playing everything from Gang of Four to, I mean, you, I'm just, there were hundreds of, of great bands. And then... Uh, and then, you know, as music changed I, changed, I just changed with it. I still loved everything that I played before. Yeah. But I just, I guess the thing with, with, with my career is I, I've been able, it's, an, it's nuts. I've been doing radio professionally for 35 years now. It's Good insane. God. Yeah. You know, and it's, and I've seen, I've gone through so many changes. I've seen radio change so much and, uh, you know, on and off in TV for like, for 20 something has it been hard to adjust with with like technology or just everything i mean it's like you were saying you keep up with all the new music is that is that kind of why you do it because you're just like i well i have this job i have to stay in touch with it because if not you're just kind of dying out with the old technology and the old music well you know i mean i just never wanted to be that guy i I never i i always i wanted to hold on to that part of myself that was always hungry to discover new artists and new music. And I still get such a rise out of that. I mean, I love hearing something that just grabs me. I love the excitement of finding something new to listen to, whether it's a song or an artist. Yeah. All right. Just still, it still drives me. That's the thing that I still love. So I do it really out of choice, but I believe that it's also necessary to stay viable. I mean, so I think there's, there, there there's two upsides to it. hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, it's a funny story. When I moved to San Francisco, and I'm just going to tell you this quickly, I, I was leaving the East Coast. I went through a breakup there. I said the winter sucked so bad. I was like so sick of like after Hurricane Sandy. I said the next radio job offer I get, I'm going, I'm moving west. And I went, I moved to San Francisco and did mornings there in a station called KFOG for a while. And then I moved down to Los Angeles because I lived here in 2000, 2001. Um, and I loved Los Angeles, but I had to move back to work at Columbia Records in New York. So I'm back where I really want to be now. Um, but I, I just, it's crazy. Here's how I consume music now. I stream it or I play it on vinyl. And that doesn't mean I don't care about the CDs that I have. They're all in a, in a, they're all in a container. In fact, my entire house from New Jersey is in a container. <laughs> Believe it or not, in New Jersey on Port Newark. And that's because a guy I grew up with, another sober guy, yeah. since we were seven years old, always loved music together, been friends. We're, we're running partners in drugs and alcohol and madness when we were younger. He got sober way before I did, obviously. Sure. So he's like, he just like, I'm gonna let him figure it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's part of like, you know, he's part of that New Jersey thing. You know, the, you know, what the real Sopranos and that kind of thing. So yeah. He has a, he has a business there where he has containers and a trucking companies and all this stuff, um, in Jersey. And he knew that I was flying back and forth trying to pack my house to go take this job in San Francisco. And he goes, "Man, you're killing yourself. What the fuck are you doing?" He goes, "I'm." He goes, "Look." I'm going to send over two trucks. You tip the drivers. They'll put everything in this, and I'll put it in a container. And it's been there 
for like four and a half years, I have not seen any of my old stuff. I recollected all the records that I have now. This wow. Is things that I bought since I moved to San Francisco and then down to L.A. And so all, the only way I consume music is streaming it on Spotify or Apple or something like that. And, or I, I have my vinyl because I still like, I, I, I love the vinyl Sure. Stuff. All right, let's get into Sucker. Yeah. Which is such a great song. This is probably one of my favorite like rock songs on the record. Everything about this song fucking rules. The way it starts with yeah, that, that opening that, line. You know, hey there, your friendly neighborhood. Say this wanna take you for a ride. Oh my god. That's so great. That is, I called up my buddy Adam Egot, who's the booker, the talent booker at the comedy store. He's a fan of Mott the Hoople. And I was like, I don't know who to talk to, so I'm just going to reach out to you. That might be the greatest line to open a song (laughs) in the history of music. Um, It's so good. And Ian Hunter was, he could write the most emotionally cool and heart wrenching songs about relationships and regret, but he could also write. These come out with these really cool, like sexy. It's a it's like, like tongue in cheeks. I, I love you that know, you said you know. sexy because this song yeah. is so fucking sexy. It's like I mean, from my understanding from reading it, it it's about freaky sex. That's yeah. kind of what I got from it. I know we were saying it's this whole album's either about resili- uh, rebellion or fucking. Yeah, um, it is. It absolutely is. Which is one of the things that always drove rock and roll. Which is why it's great. I used to DJ at a strip club, and I got invited. Oh, I to, did too. Did you? Of course, yeah, because right. listen to our voices. Yeah, exactly. Hold on. We all had right. to. All right, Peter, uh, play Genuine's Pony right now. Let's have a strip club DJ uh, battle between you yeah. and I. So Genuine Pony, perfect. It's playing. All right, go ahead and bring yeah, a girl go. on yeah, and off go. stage and announce a special. Yeah, here we go. All right, it's Brandy. Brandy's up next, and don't forget we have four shots for ten dollars for the next half hour. Here she goes to Pony. <laughs> All right, let me let me see. If Dude, the guys, this is gonna be easy. All right, hit that Pony again. All right, perfect. All right. Oh yeah, y'all. Guys, give it up for cilantro on the main stage, y'all. You know what we doing here, guys. Buy two dances, get one free. Save a little bit of green, get everything in between. You know what I'm saying. Coming up on the main stage next, give it up for paprika. That was so much better than Thank mine. Thank you, buddy. I, so much I, better than mine. I just did mine. it a few years ago. I haven't done it. <laughs> so much but just thinking you about were great. what. Thank you very much. It was <laughs> you know? the worst job of my life and gave me a crippling drug addiction, but I made a lot of money. And uh, it was just such a tough job Like when I was doing it because I'm trying. I'm like playing Madison Square Garden with Bill Burr, and then I'd have to go back to work at the strip club, and I could never – handle it and it really like you look at the job it's it's a it's a job it kept me out here i don't look back at it with like with like a heavy heart it didn't ruin me because i'm in a good place now but uh every once in a while when i go down the five and i go to do a show like tonight i have to go to long beach i wouldn't do it tonight because i have two shows but uh i drive by the old club i used to work at and i just pop in and and i and i'm not mean I just want to say hi to there's a couple people that I'm friends with that still work there. Uh, a lot of them have left, but I just go there to remind myself why I need to work hard. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, no, it's- exactly. There are cer- there are certain things that literally will trigger you to say, "Listen, I don't want to be back here." 
So if I continue on the Just, path I'm going, yes. I'm going to I'm going to do so much better because you know, you don't want to find yourself moving backwards and especially in the place when when you are Oh, I'm doing great now. God forbid yeah. I have to go back. I yeah. can't do it. Never yeah. going back, but I'll be honest with everybody. I'm the greatest strip club DJ that ever lived. But um, then I start. I did new faces at Just for Laughs, which is yeah. a huge deal. And I came back and had to go back to work there. And I could not compartmentalize that it's just a job. I'm still working on my career. I looked at it, and my depressed brain would always say, "Well, I'm going to be doing this forever." Oh my god, I need to get out of here. And then my drug addiction took over. And then eventually, I got fired. Uh, and I was, I was bummed out, but I had already sold the TV show. I already had this stuff going on. And when I got fired, I didn't even realize that it was the best thing they ever could have done for me because I was like, okay, like I had to like struggle with money for a couple months, but then I got sober, my life got better. And it, it's from that point on, like I said, it's been, it's, you know, I appreciate the job. I appreciate the girls. I didn't really hook up with the girls. I just, I went there, yeah. I used it as an ATM. Uh, that's not saying I didn't get laid every once in a while, yeah. but the worst thing that ever could happen to me, Matt, is that if I was DJing and then somebody comes up and go, didn't I see you perform at the comedy store a week ago? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, cool. You're a strip club DJ? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> just, it just killed <laughs> you know, me. 100%. And I just want to say the difference, I think, from when I was, and, and, and believe me, I, 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 you know, I, there were there were some strippers that I slept with, obviously, but it was the same thing. It wasn't like every single night. I mean, I, you know, was in between girlfriends and that yeah. kind of thing. Oh yeah, dude. I was young too. I mean, you know, I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Dude, when you're eighteen, nineteen, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. you're supposed to do. I mean, that. you know what I mean. And if somebody showed interest in you that you were attracted to, you were like, "Let's go, dude." I, I fucked know? cilantro. I fucked paprika. I fucked all <laughs> yeah, of them. You know? Not that often, but I did. Yes, that'll take us. And it's funny that we're talking about that because that brings us into Jerkin Crocus. A 70s sexism song that I kind of got from that. I love this song so much. The beginning reminded me of that song All Right Now. Yeah, it's got like that that kind of riff like free. It's very much like free. Very, very. And then it it sounds like a Rolling Stones song. It's just very. It's so stones and free. You couldn't be more right. Thank you. you. Here's the interesting thing. I I love that you said that coming from you. I'm like, I did do a good job on this. You did amazing. (laughs) And you, and you know, it's funny because. You know, the the crazy thing is that Mick Ralphs, who was playing guitar in this band, ended up leaving Motley Hoople to start Bad Company with Paul Rogers from Free. Yep, yep. And then, you know, and the reason why, and this is an interesting story that Ian Hunter from Motley Hoople told me. He said the reason that Mick Ralphs left after the Mott album uh, was because... He said he would bring him these songs, like Can't Get Enough of Your Love and, you know, Moving On and that kind of stuff. And he would just tell him, I can't sing these songs. Like, these songs are written for a guy like Paul Rogers. He's got, like, an R&B, sure. soulful, blues voice. Yeah. And, and you know, and that wasn't Ian Hunter's voice. Oh, so, 100%. eventually, Mick Rouse had to take that elsewhere. But you could tell. You can hear the, you can hear it. the stones I mean, in there, you know. Uh, best line of the song, and it's it's in the chorus. He goes, I know what she want, a judo you know, hold on, on a black, black man's bones. bones. Uh, yeah. It's bones? Oh, I got it's balls. balls. It I got balls. balls. It is balls. It's balls, and then it's it balls. bones, too. They, yeah, they do bones and balls. Right, so, so, yeah. Let me ask you yeah. a question. When was there a time, tell me about a time, that someone had a hold of your black man's balls? Um... I'm not really sure what that means, or yeah, it's, I mean, well, well, just like somebody's yeah. holding you down, somebody's yeah. got you by the grip, like yeah, somebody. I feel like as a comedian, uh, you know, there there are so many people in the industry that have a hold of my balls, and yeah. 
I mean, I'll, I'll use my example and then we give you yours. When I did New Faces at Just yeah. for Laughs, I bring this up a lot because it was a big deal for me. Uh, I was so honored to be it, and I thought my life was going to change. And then everybody in the industry, after I showcased in JFL, said to me, we don't know what to do with you. We think you are so funny, but you're edgy, and your hair, and your voice, and you got this rock and roll thing, and it's just, we don't know what to do. And so they were, they were basically gripping me and restricting me from really succeeding. I had to go back to working at the strip club, which, which crushed me. And, and I was like, all right, well, what can I do? I can either change to be more like the comedians working today that are successful, that I had gone and done JFL with or the people performing on The Tonight Show or what have you. Or I can lean more into me. Right. Yeah. So what I decided is I'm going to lean into Josh. And that was when I created the goddamn comedy jam, which, which is, is so cool, which is just this. It's me. It's 100 percent me. It's comedy. It's music. It's storytelling. And, you know, I and, and I said, I'm going to do it for fun. I didn't expect anything out of it. And the next thing I know, a year later, after I created it, I had quit the strip club. I had a television deal, um, which went on to be a, a terrible show on Comedy Central. Uh, not my fault. I fought as hard as I could, but I understood. Uh, I when I was still in the show, I was addicted to oxycotton, and I wouldn't put me on stage scratching myself on television either. But that was me. That was how I got out of my black man's balls grip. So, do you have a time in your life that something like that might have happened? Well, I, I, you know what I relate to in a big way with you, um, and it's interesting because we've you've been in a car accident. I was recently hit by a speeding car yeah. that nearly killed me, and I. Uh, you know, I broke my leg in two places. It, it tore my head open. I now have this kind of uh, biker-looking scar across the front of my head. But I hate to say it, but it's pretty badass, dude. It is. You look good. Yeah, it's you know, it's cool. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it, Josh. But the way I feel like you do with having to go back and work, um, I have a similar story that actually has to do with MTV because it's interesting. The first time that I hosted 120 minutes in 93. Great show, dude. Great show. There's man. a great playlist on Spotify that's that's <laughs> 120 minutes music, and I listen to it all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I got the opportunity to host that show for as long as I did and be one of the main hosts uh, like Dave Kendall. We were the two longest-running hosts of that show. But, you know, it was crazy. I was running a radio station on the Jersey Shore, okay, Um and I, I'm reading the music trade. It's like these radio things with the radio charts in them. And there were, used to be a ton of them, you know, back yeah. back before you could actually use technology to find out how, how often people were really playing the records. Yeah. Because they used to be able to use, you know, buy people, buy people's ads and they would lie and say they were playing a record when they really weren't and all this other crazy stuff. But now it's all monitored by technology. Um, so here we are. I look in this music trade. And it says that Dave Kendall is leaving as host of 120 Minutes. So they used to track records with me because they knew I was I was for real. And they would call me up the MTV Music Department and go, is this bullshit or is this record really happening? Are you getting a good read on this? Is this band for real? Is this just record company hype? And I would tell them my perspective or what I could see from, you know, the people in, 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 in Jersey where I ran this alternative station. So I just happened to say to this guy, Kurt Steffick, who's programming 120, and it was very naive. You know, it was very naive. I just, I go, so what happened with Dave Kendall? He said, well, they blew him out. And I said, you know what, man? You need someone like me to host that show who artists are going to respect and actually knows the music. And I wasn't being cocky. I was being naive. And he says to me, which is hilarious, he goes, well, you know what? I don't know if they'll still think you're in the demo, 
which is hilarious, you know, like because I ended up doing that show like for the next like whatever, yeah. years. <laughs> but he goes, I, I'm going to talk to them uh, and I'll get back to you in about a week. And then he, later that day, he calls me. He talks to this guy, Andy Schoen. And Andy was the head of music and talent and used to run K Rock here uh, in Los Angeles. And then he brought out Kennedy and all those people. So. I finally do an audition. I'm like a deer in headlights. I'd never done television before. You just only done radio, right? Yeah, I'd only okay. done radio, but you know, I, I was competent enough to, you know, do these sample breaks and talk about, you know, my, my history in, in alternative music. And so I finally get a shot. They call me up and they said, You wanna do uh they go, you know, we've been having artists host. Uh Depeche Mode do not wanna host their own episode. So we're gonna give you an opportunity to fill in. So I, it's nineteen ninety three. I go in I do the uh, interview with Dave Gahan and Martin Gore of Depeche Mode. Um, Dave is amazing. Martin Gore's out of it. Because a lot of times British bands would come in and they'd be burned out or party the night before and then they'd have to do 1.20 in the morning or whatever time yeah, It's kind of it like the, the famous like Mr. <laughs> show making fun of the Oasis interviews. Yes. They're like, okay, yeah. maybe. They're just really... Really? Yeah. I mean, that one's basically kind of a goof on 120. Yeah. That was the deal. Yeah, oh, I remember. I, it's, yeah. I, I, I yeah. That. Which is great. You know, but... um. So, but it, but it, Martin was kind of like he was like kind of phasing out, and I and I was look, looking at him and thinking to myself, "Fuck, Martin, look at me! You're gonna ruin my fucking TV career before it even begins." Yeah, you know. But Dave Gahan, the singer of Depeche Mode, was being really cool. Eventually, Martin engaged me, and I did the episode. I thought I was a little stiff in it, but I mean, I th- I thought I did a pretty good job. And sure. um, I get a phone call from a woman who's in charge of talent named Lauren Levine, and she calls me up. And leaves me a message and says, you did a wonderful job with Martin Bohr. You know, she called him Martin Bohr because yeah. he was like, so, but even though I love him now and I've been teasing him for years, busting his balls going, dude, you almost you, fucked, you almost destroyed, fucked, fucked my up, career, dude. man. I can't believe it. And, you know, now we have this running joke uh, with it. But so, you know, all of a sudden they tell me I did a great job and they call me in. They want to meet with me. And here I am thinking, oh, fuck. Maybe I actually have 120 minutes now. This would be fucking amazing. And because all the local papers in New Jersey and Asbury Park and all those places wrote the article about me filling in and doing the show, you know, everybody had high expectations. I'm on the radio five days a week. I'm spinning in nightclubs still to to take care of my kid because, you know, radio didn't pay shit. But I loved what I was doing. I loved the music. I was the same way for you. It's just what I was driven to do. I was breaking a lot of new artists. Anyway, um, I go in. So I go in to meet with Andy Schoen, and I sit down, and he goes... Matt, you know what? Um, we, we thought you did an amazing job, but we're going to have Lewis Largent do the show because he's here as vice president of music and we want to give him a little higher profile. But we want you to know we really like the job you did and um, we're going to keep you in mind uh, you know, for filling in and doing some other stuff. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11.
Hey you, do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. So, you know, my, my heart sank to my, to yeah. my feet, my ball, you know, like, you know, your balls in your throat. It was, I, you know, I remember I had to walk down the street and I had to go immediately to do an interview with this band, the Water Boys from Scotland, because I was doing that for a CD release for Geffen. And I had to pull my shit together because I was really down about it. I can imagine. Yeah. And imagine what it was like. So I know how you feel when you talk about how you went back in the club and you're like, oh, you see me in the club. Because there I was back in the nightclub spinning in New Jersey. Yeah. Spinning the alternative things. People going, well, what's going on with 120? And of course, I spun it like Andy said to me because I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to do fill-ins and uh, that kind of stuff. But I mean, uh, you know, here I am. You're like that close to uh, grabbing a hold of the ring. Sure. And, uh, but eventually, you know, what happened was- Yeah, well, I was about to yeah, ask. What, yeah. well, how did it here's eventually a, here, turn in your favor? Well, here's how it turned in my favor. Um- I ended up like never giving up and I called Andy Schoen like once a month and it was of course before the internet and cell phones. So I would leave a message for him once a month at the MTV office. He was the head of music and talent just so he'd see me on his, on his, on his call sheet. Sure. And you know what? I think that I recommend that to anybody if you want to, cause otherwise out of sight, out of mind, you're gone. A hundred percent. You know? So I would do that every month and eventually three people left the music department who are picking the videos and programming the music and uh, I get a phone call that, uh, you know, they're looking for three new people to fill in for three that are living, leaving and the position for manager of music programming is open. So I interview for the job. Um, you know, I'm working at this mom and pop radio station on the Jersey Shore. Great station, HTG. But there's only three phone lines. It's in a woman's house. There's cats running around. You have to go through her kitchen to get down to the production office. You have to go. And, and you know, like, you can only do it when she wants to have the thing open. Yeah. So it's the most dysfunctional it's like radio. a weird bed and breakfast. It really is. Like, oh, I care. Well, yeah, I, you know, I got to do was, top was, ten tonight. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's move Mr. Yeah. Flufflesworth. You move yeah. me, it was just like that. It was like, move move the Fuck. cat and it was off, the, off the recording thing because we to record a commercial. The cat threw up on yeah. the board again. Can you grab some napkins? <laughs> yeah, we, I got you, man. Here you uh, go. It was unbelievable. That was what it was really like. I mean, you know, but so there were... There, <laughs> I could just imagine you're like, all right, so there's a new band out of Seattle. You hear a cat in the background. Yeah. <laughs> 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 all right, and here it is with Nevermind. It was so true. But, but you know, I mean, the thing was, per perception is reality. And sure. people in the area loved the station. And, and you know, it was, it was great, but... I, I just got to say that the day that I know Andy Schoen's going to call me and I'll find out what's going on, yeah. I want to explain that we're talking about a radio station where you walk in the reception, there's two studios, there's one for the beautiful music and Sinatra and Standard Station that's only on from dusk till dawn, uh, and then there's the FM alternative station here. And everybody uses three phone lines. There's only three phone lines. It's like an old phone. So I'm like, oh my God, he's, I know he's supposed to call me. Man, what if he changes his mind? He can't get yeah. through. All the phone lines are busy. So it's playing in my head, and it's making me crazy. And all of a sudden, the, he rings the phone. Um, I answer it. I say, WHTG. And he goes, hey, Matt, it's Andy Schoen. I've been trying to call you for about three hours. 
I go, oh, man, I'm sorry, Andy. We only have three lines here, you know. Uh, and, you know <laughs> and the cat threw off yeah, on the other one. Exactly. I, I don't know what to do. Exactly. And you know what? This is the, the thing that changed my life. This moment. He, I just, he just goes, well, I'll tell you what, Matt. He goes, you come work for me at MTV, and I'll give you more than three lines. And that was the moment yeah. that my life completely changed. I went there. But here's the thing that's crazy that people don't really know. I never expected to be on TV again. I did not want to go in with them thinking I had a hidden agenda to be on TV. Of course, I really wished I was doing 120, but I still got to be involved in picking the videos and programming and working with artists there. And I was just accepted that I was behind the scenes and I was cool with that. You know, I was like, oh, this is the way it's got to be. This is the way it's got to be. And it was a bittersweet day the day I did my last radio show at that station because I just sat at my kitchen table depressed going, well, I'm getting this great opportunity, but man, I'm going to miss being on the air. And, you know, so regardless, um, a few months go by and they go to me, hey, another band's coming in, Oasis, and they don't want to <laughs> host their own episode. So they go, you've got three weeks to do the show. And at this point, I didn't care because I didn't have anything to lose. I was already in the music department. I was having a great time working there, yeah. working with all the artists, helping break bands, you know, helping Radiohead. I remember, you know, Tom York actually cried when he gave us the gold records for the bands. He goes, I know you took a lot of shit for... You know, because what happened with the Benz was after Creep, the rest of the record industry wanted to, and it's a lot of critics too who wouldn't admit it now, but they wanted to write off Radiohead as a one hit wonder with Creep. Because of Creep, yeah. I mean, and, it's. And, yeah, and the Benz was, a, Benz was a great album. It's fantastic. Man, Opening with Planet Telex. I yeah, mean, it's I mean, just so fucking it's good. Fucking amazing album. And I loved it. And we loved it in the music department. So, you know, people would have to come in like they do at other radio stations and they'd do a pitch for their new record or their promo person would come in and want you to add this and they'd go, why are you guys still still playing that Radiohead video all the time? Our record sold an extra 535 copies this week. And we're like, we don't really give a shit. The truth is, is this is a great band and this is amazing art and this is, they're making incredible videos. Yeah. So we stood behind them. And so that day that Tom York came in and gave me and Andy and Lewis and everybody our gold records for the bands, and he literally came up and said, I know you took a lot of shit for this and broke into tears was one of the most incredible moments. Oh, I can imagine. Ever. You know what I, I mean? I can imagine. So anyway, I ended up hosting the show um, one time with Oasis, and then the uh, woman who was the head of talent walked in and go, I did a complete 180. You need to be hosting this show every week. You're great at it. And that's how I ended up being in the music department and getting to do 120, and then eventually getting to do... A bunch of other shows yeah. because they were doing research, right? And they were saying, I would even have the guys from Yo! TV Raps come up to me and go, hey, Matt, you know what? The black and Spanish community is really feeling you because you're genuine. You're real. Because I wasn't full of shit. Dude, you, were the, you were one of my favorite VJs, man. Because you, you, you were the only person that didn't seem like they were, they were trying. You felt like you were, you were honestly, I love this band and I want to present them to you. Instead of like, okay, guys, coming up next, we've got Nelson with... I can't live without you, blah, blah, blah. And you're yeah. like, all right, we get it. You're, you're spunky. You mm. felt it, and we felt that with you. So that's yeah. fucking great, yeah, dude. I appreciate it, Josh. So that was how I had that moment where I had to go back. and I love it. The that was, that was the perfect fucking answer for that. <laughs> yeah, you know? You know why? Because you're one of the boys, which is our next song here on this show. Initially, this is another song that I thought sounded like a different artist. It, it starts like a Bob Seger song. Yeah. One of the boys. 
I love the slow start, and then at like 49 seconds, it just kicks in. And I love when it drops out, the phone rings, all the different like effects that were kind of going on throughout the song. And then it just starts into this final pounding jam. And I bet this song live was be so insane. I actually was hoping it was going to pick up to like double time. Sample lyrics, I borrowed Gypsy's Gibson just to show them. And now I'm a rock and roll star. I don't want to know them. And they want to sh- they want to stray. They better go out and grow one. Could this song be written today? Because it sounds very pro man. Like, well, I think what it really is trying to say, and, and of course, I mean, look, let's here's here's one of the things I please. say. To, I say to everybody, could Brown Sugar be a number one record today? No, no way. In nineteen seventy seventy one. You could say, uh, hear him whip the women just around midnight. First yeah. of all, the song is talking about black women. It's talking about slavery. Those songs could never be hits in the world today, right? Yeah. So it was a different time. I feel like one of the boys, though, is kind of really celebrating that whole feeling that people in a band are a gang. You know what I mean? Like, it's your gang. Kind of like the Clash where we're the last gang in town. You yeah. know what I mean? Um I think that a band, a band, if the guys are, if it's, if it's a real band and it's, you know, then it's a gang of guys. And I think that's really what they were kind of talking sure. about. And uh, once again, I think it, it also, if you listen to the lyrics, one of the things that a lot of people would do back then to project, and it's almost in the same way that Prince was so smart when they were like, how can this guy who only had Little Red Corvette want, get a movie you know, he's what the balls on this guy to want to do a movie, this yeah. Purple Rain movie. And of course, it was fantastic. But you have to have a vision for yourself as something bigger than, you know, than where you are of at course. the time. So even the earliest, the earliest Mount the Hoople songs like Rock and Roll Queen said, I'm just a rock. You're just a rock and roll queen. You know what I mean? And I'm just a rock and roll star. Well, they were the first to sing from rock and roll stars. Yeah. But if, you know. You declare it, and perception is reality. So if you're a young kid listening to those songs, you're like, wow, one of the boys. I'm one of the gang. Or I'm a rock and roll star. Like even Bowie, when he did that on Ziggy Stardust. You know, it's and people did it for years. They would make references to being stars. Hip-hop artists have done it for years. Oh, yeah, it's definitely, you you have to aim high. And so you have to project, like, you know, just as big as it can be. You know, to even get to that medium place, you just have to believe. And and I think that's kind of what it was. It's kind of like you loving Iron Maiden and Motley Crue. It was like, wow, look what these guys yeah. are doing. They're like, they're living the rock and roll dream. Oh, yeah. Right? Dude, Motley Crue is just yeah. like the I mean, epitome was, of debauchery. We've yeah. all read the dirt. Yeah, exactly. They're great guys. I mean, I really I can like imagine. them. They seem, I, I they like seem great. So much. I, I've, yeah. been able to, I've been able to come friends with like Steven Adler from Guns N' Roses through Burr. Yeah. I, I've met a lot of... Um, like I, I still have never met Slash. I met Duff. He was the nicest Duff guy is the in the best. world. He's just the. I met him twice. <laughs> I met him at when we did Bumber Shoot, and his yeah. daughter was uh, was playing. Oh yeah, because his daughter has his a daughter was yeah. there. And then I met him at the Hollywood Improv, and he was just you know when we when I met him at Bumber Shoot, he he was just kind of in a rush, so it was just a quick meet and greet picture. Like, hey man, nice to see you. Blah blah blah. You know, do you mind if I get a picture? He's like, yeah, of course. But when we were at the Improv. He was friends with Jay Moore. And I got to like sit down and talk to him. And it's like, it's one of those things where he couldn't have been 
nicer. He couldn't have wanted to get to know me. I told him about the jam, and he's like, yeah, if I'm free, I'd love to come. I mean, though, it's 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 one of those things where you're meeting somebody that you look up to, and they they they're just they're just so great. Let me let me yeah. tell you, this is my dad's got the best meeting people story. Um, so my dad is a big jazz fan, yeah, and I'm a big jazz fan because of that. I'm obsessed with Miles Davis. I think he's one of the greatest musicians in the history of music. You know, and my dad was back in like seventy. Four, let's say he was at the Four Seasons in Washington D.C. When my dad used to live in Philadelphia, so he went down for this business conference, and he gets into to the into the uh, elevator and goes down a, a floor, and then next thing you know, Miles Davis walks in, and he's full on seventies Davis with like a boa, the big ass bug glasses. Oh yeah, my like da- yeah, it was bitches brewing, just, and, and after that, just fucking yeah. dope. Yeah, and and my dad, it's just him and my dad in the elevator, and my my dad says. You're Miles Davis, right? And Miles goes, nah, man. So my dad's like, all right. They go down a couple more floors. Then my dad's stop is there. And so my the, the, the elevator's about to stop, and my dad looks over at Miles and goes, listen, man, I know you're not Miles Davis, but if you run into him, can you just tell him that I really dig his music? And Miles pulls his glasses down and goes, thank you, baby. That's, <laughs> that's the best. That's it. That's one of the greatest ever. That's the best. My- you know, it, it's funny because these the great classic artists, the things that will come out of their mouths. Like somebody brought Chubby Checker over to meet me. Oh, that would be and, incredible. Yeah, and you know, but here's the best thing. This is what he said, and he come kept, on, he, and, yeah, and he kept repeating himself. Like, well, this is really funny. I mean, how I'm, you doing, Matt Penville? Yeah, and I <laughs> said to him, I said, Chubby man, let's twist again in Limbo Rock. Those are such great songs. And he um, basically looks at me and says, that money's spent already. I got a new song. And he just keeps <laughs> saying that. I go, but it's but, but Limbo Rock was so great. That money spent already. I got a new song. <laughs> and then he was so nuts. And he's there with his manager, right? And his manager like is trying to be relevant uh for Chubby. And you know, Chubby, you obviously the guy's been around since the nineteen sixties when he was on Cameo Parkway. So he doesn't know like what's going on out here in the world. He remembers yeah. the days of Paola in Philadelphia. So <laughs> They actually hand me a CD and oh, some of the other people there, and it's got 15 mixes of the same song. And there's a metal mix, a hip hop mix, a glam mix, <laughs> a trance mix. It's like it is just, just this yeah. one song. They just said like, oh, we got we got to cover all bases. I His love manager, it. it was. It was hilarious. Fuck yeah, dude! I just I wish I I still had that CD because I would just love to I'd play love it for you. I would love yeah, to hear that. Yeah, I want to hear the trance mix. This is the bossa nova mix. This is the adult contemporary <laughs> mix. You know what? I like that he's oh. trying to connect. Going into soft ground. Uh, now listen, I I I do I do like this song, but I I always like to say this: if there if there's one song I had to remove. From the record to make it a perfect record, I think you and I Brown, would agree. Really? <laughs> yes, Thank we you. would. Thank you. Because this is a Verdon Allen song, you know, and I mean, this was a period where they were still trying to give, I guess, everybody in the band opportunity to write, and they're really the only real writers in the band, in my opinion, were Ian Hunter, Mick Ralphs, until he left the band to form Bad Company, and Over and Watts. Those three guys could write songs. Okay. But Verdon Allen, I think it was just one of those things where they're like, oh, we gotta, we'll put one of his songs on the record. And uh, yeah, so that's the one I would take off too. So isn't I, I'm glad we agree. I love that you said that. I love that you said that. But I do, I was reading the message of the song. It's uh, too many people about telling me what to do with myself. It's hard to get around walking on soft, soft ground. Now, it, it, so it does have, 
like a, like a vibe about being different, about alienation. Wouldn't uh, you agree the lyrics could, could have been used in a better song? I think so, yes. Like, I think the thing about this track in particular is those lyrics are actually pretty good. I mean, there have been uh, songs that have fared much better that have had a lot worse lyrics. Oh, completely. Um, so, but I feel that it just falls short on the album. It just feels like, you know, one of those... There's so many albums that there's some perfect albums, and then you know the majority of records there's at least one song that's filler. There I always is, and then that, this is the filler. So yeah. if this is gone, it would be perfect. But that goes in to one of my favorite songs because you're following up with just two songs that I thought were just just perfect. I mean these these songs are perfect. Ready for love, after lights, uh, incredible. The chorus is so sick and you know now i'm on my feet again better things are bound to happen all my dues surely must be paid many miles and many tears times were hard but now, now they're, they're changing pain. i mean i love that you should know <laughs> you, you should know that i'm not afraid so tell me about a dark time in your life and how you broke through from that oh uh, well there have been many i mean i've you know i've certainly dealt with you know my share of problems due to uh, drug use and alcoholism over the years and, and depression too you know and, you know, and I've gone through some, you know, breakups that have really broken my heart sure. and made me feel like... What just means you're alive. Shit. I mean, that's, yeah. listen... You, I mean, I've used music to get me through absolutely everything, and that's why I'm so passionate about it, yeah. is because part of what gave me the strength to get through so many times... I mean, I had an aneurysm when I was 15 and almost Fuck, died. Dude. Ended up in the hospital, like, and, you know, and, you know, I was going from being the lead singer of the band that played all... It's a band called Thunderhead, and we did all covers. It's a great name. And, but we played, like, you know, the teen center and all the junior high dances. So I went from the kid with hair to finding out an aneurysm, being in the hospital in the summer, and then the uh, a neurosurgeon walking into me and going... um. Well, you have a choice, Matt. Do you want us to shave half your head or all your head? Yeah. And I look at him and I go, at what the fuck? At 15, I go, all my head, all of course. Of it, you so, you know, what the fuck? All right, so, <laughs> you know, and what I didn't know until I got older, my mother finally admitted to me that she went to other neurosurgeons who saw me and they told her I wasn't going to live. This guy told her I had a 25% chance of living. There was no laser surgery back then. Yeah. So I felt like I had been dealt a really shitty hand there and was really down about it because I went from being the singer in a band with hair in the 70s where, yeah, you really needed to have hair to before it was cool to have a bald head. Um, I was, I literally it almost, it's really interesting because now you see I have this big scar on my head from the car accident. Yeah. It looks, you know, um, it was the same thing, but at 15 years old, I had... Uh, like stitches all the way up and down the, the left side of my head. I was in the hospital for a good part of the summer, and I was really depressed and down. I remember one time just sitting in a burned-out car at, at this junkyard mm -hmm. uh, in a snowstorm, not going to school, and just sitting there going, why the fuck? What did I do in a past life yeah. to deserve this absolute misery? And... Um, Music was the thing that got me through. So there were certainly many dark times uh, in it. my life. But, you know, I, I persevered through them, um, you know. But uh, I've been, I've been, you know, very, very, I've had a fortunate, very adventurous sure. life. Sure, you've had you a know? great life. Well, like, <laughs> let me ask you about the situation that happened not too long ago. I mean, how have you been able to stay positive coming out of the car accident? Well, I'll tell you, really, I mean, I think being sober really uh, is helpful. But, I, but I, the main thing is that, you know, when I crossed the street that night at 7.45 and I saw this car out of the corner of my eye, like, racing towards me, 
I went to jump out of the way. And when I looked both ways before that, because I've crossed that street a thousand times right out here. Yeah. It's literally a mile from here. And I, um, I, I just saw this car coming at me at the most unbelievable speed. And I went to jump up. And then, of course, I broke my leg in two places, had a compound fracture. The bone came out. My, my, my leg looked like a pretzel. I went up through the windshield. My head smashed through the windshield. Yeah. And, you know, my girlfriend discovered pieces of glass in my head like a week ago we, that they missed because, you know, my head had split open so badly and there was blood everywhere Fuck. that I, we found more glass in my head that we pulled out from the windshield. But... I bounced off the hood of the car, and I was conscious for the whole thing. And then I land on the ground. I smack my head. So I have a hard head because, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I'm covered in blood. My cell phone doesn't break. That's one miracle. You're like, of course it was a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, well, you know, Fuck. it's unfucking believable, right? So they, you know, they, people are there, and they're like, are you, you know, like, I'm a doctor, and people are You're awake ambulances. during this. You didn't I'm awake for the whole thing. Fuck, and it woke dude. up everybody at Hollywood Tower, LaBelle at Hollywood Tower, Capitol Gardens, all the surrounding apartments thought it was a car hitting another car. It was a car hitting my body. Jesus. It was unbelievable. So, you know, they basically said to me, as they cut all my bloody clothes off in the uh, ambulance, um, they said, you know, you are so lucky to be alive. Most people would not have survived what you just went through. And I got to the hospital and in the, in the ER at Cedar sinai here in Los Angeles, uh, it turns out the guy was a hard rock metal fan. So he was like, they go, I hear them say to him, well, you just want to staple his head? And he goes, no, no, no. I, I used to watch this guy on TV. He goes, I'm going to sew him his head back. And they did like a local anesthesia. It was so painful. Oh, I know. While, while they were, you know, going, you know. I mean, I while know. they were going into your head and sewing it up. And he was just talking to me about his favorite rock and roll albums while he was sewing me up, which was probably a great distraction. Yeah, 100%. You're just, you, I mean, even with anesthesia, it still is like just knowing it. And oh, my God. It was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean. You know, I know I was lucky to be alive, and I know when people came in and saw me, they were they were horrified. A lot of people were in tears, like my friends from all over that live around here um, in Los Angeles. They were, you know, but I mean, you know, I stayed positive because I knew from hearing it from every single doctor and surgeon that I was absolutely lucky to be alive, that most people wouldn't have survived it without paralysis, um, you know, loss of hearing, loss of speech, loss of eyesight, loss of more body parts, yes. two broken legs I could have had. So I consider myself somebody who's extremely lucky, and that's how I stayed positive through this. And I would send in a psychiatrist every other day in the hospital and go, you might be hitting a period of complete depression. We want to let you know that in advance. And um, so far, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, but I, you know, I'm an emotional guy like you. I yeah. get depressed. I mean, you know, I think most guys that are in, into rock and roll or comedy definitely feel, so. we feel. We feel everything. Yeah, man. especially. You know? That's beautiful, man. That is fucking beautiful. And then that takes me into Sea Diver, which uh, I don't have a question for. I just have to say, the first time I heard this song, just stop me in my tracks. Uh, the line, ride on my son, just started making me weep. Uh, it, I think it's such a beautiful way to end the record. Uh, it's it's a perfect song. The orchestration and when that hits and that that little Peter just play the part where the strings come in right in between the first chorus. Something come, something go, and something die. Just do you hear that, people? 
Do you hear how fucking beautiful that is? And I have no questions for that song because it was so perfect. I don't even want to pick it apart. And I love that song. I mean, I just love in that lyric about, you know, something, th- some things die before they grow. Yeah, let me see if I, I mean, I, you know, I, I just love that. Something comes and something goes and something dies before it grows. I love that lyric. Yeah, that's perfect. And that could, it, and it's it's a metaphor for so many different things. You know what I mean? Oh, wish it, I could escape this iron veil. I mean, it's just, it's a heavy song. I mean, this is, you said this is Ian Hunter? Yeah. Yeah, Ian Hunter writes, he's written some unbelievable tracks. I mean, the guy, the guy, you know, writes those rock and roll songs that are those, you know, like yeah. declaring I'm a, I'm a rock and roll star and, you know, things that are sexual about, you know, women he's mad and groupies. But he also had that side of him that was so emotive and uh, just it would, it would just tear up your heart. All right, you want to do some facts real quick? Sure. All right. Ready for facts. Yes. Ooh, baby, I'm ready for facts. All right, there you we go. It. I know. I'm, I'm, I, I, <laughs> do. I love, I mean, I love this so great? much. I love this so much. I'm so right. glad you love this album. I mean, dude, I am, I, I, am, I am now a Mata Hoople fan. I wasn't before because I didn't know it. That's yeah. why I'm doing this, to discover the greatest music in the history of mankind. All right, here we go. First fact. This, uh, the band was named after the character Norman Mott, in the Willard Manis novel, Mott the Hoople. Right, okay, and that was, um, you know, uh, the Hoople was supposed to be a loser. That was what the really? word I didn't know that. Would stood for Mott, Mott. It was like another, the Hoople was an expression for loser. Did you read that? I did read that. Good for, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Also, they mentioned the band Mott the Hoople in the beginning of a 70s movie, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh-huh. There's a scene where uh, they go, there, you're just laying around, sitting around, listening to Mott the Hoople. Fuck. So. You know, dude, you are like an encyclopedia of information. You're probably going to know all these facts. All right. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Uh, you already talked about this, but this, All the Young Dudes, was written and produced by David Bowie. Mata Hoople had a cult following in England, and Bowie was a huge fan. The problem was they weren't selling many albums, and they were about to break up, like you said. Bowie heard their impending breakup when Matt, when Mott bass player Peter Overend... Yeah, Overend, uh, yeah. Yeah, he said he called them looking for work and in an effort to keep the band together, offered to produce the next album and provide them with a song that he was working on. All right, so who has helped you the most in your career to find a bigger audience? Well, there have been many people. I mean, I really have to, you know, I have to credit, you know, I I mean, obviously Andy Schoen is a very, and, you know, and Judy McGrath and Ben Toffler and and the crew of people that worked at MTV to give me a national platform. And the amazing thing for me that why I'm so grateful uh, is they just let me be me. You know, and you were talking about when you realized that, you know, when you, when you, when you, with the comedy jam that you were talking about how this is who I really am. This is what I want to do. I'm not, I'm not conforming into anybody else's idea. I've got to give them the absolute credit, not not and the woman who owned that radio station, you know, in uh, in Asbury Park, New Jersey. She was her whole deal was, you know, Matt's Matt. Let him do what he does and, and does well. And that was the thing that I once read uh, that the bosses at MTV were saying in an article about me that uh, we just let Matt be Matt. And that was an amazing thing to actually be able to work at a job in an industry like that in in a you know you know medium like television 
that's about music, and they let you just you know, be. They let be. you just be who you were. And, and, and you know, that's why I would, you know, I would just get so excited about telling people about new bands sure. and even telling people about old bands. You know, and what you're doing right now, you know, one of the funny things we did that we never told the bosses about was at the end of 120 minutes, I started doing this thing where we decided to go, go the very last video that rolled right before the credits and under the credits. I'd go, if you've never heard of the Ramones, this is why you should listen to them. If you never heard of Mata Hoople, if you never heard of T-Rex, if you never heard, you know, of, you know, the Pixies. I mean, even though, you know what I mean? They, they got back together, but I'm just saying you, you would use... It was. I would always use that as a way to talk about bands that had come before that are really great or important yeah. um, in post-punk era, new wave, or even like you know classic stuff that made sense in the umbrella of 120 minutes. And I, I love that. And I would tell people what their best albums were. I would yeah. say, "Here's the album you should check out," and then we'd roll the video under the credits. And you know what? We never got found out because none of the bosses stayed up till 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Nobody stayed up till 2 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. So we got away with it for like two years. Fuck yeah, man. Which was great. I love that. You know? All right, here we go. <laughs> David's publisher believed that Bowie had made a serious mistake in giving the song away. He believed that Bowie had, if Bowie had released all the young dudes in 72, he would have become an even bigger star that he would have, that would have made him... Uh, Huge beyond our comprehension. Now, have you ever helped someone and it backfired? Um, you know, I'll tell you, I have helped people that didn't really appreciate it, and and you know, and basically, um, you know, I mean, and it even it even goes back to the period of when I was like, like the main guy spinning in a nightclub. You know yeah. what I mean in Jersey, where you help somebody train them, you get them there and doing it, and then they basically stab you in the back. And you know, I, I think we go through that. In so many ways, I got went through that at the radio station. I'd been through it in almost every job. I got to be honest with you. In almost everywhere that I've ever worked for a long period of time, there's been somebody um, that I have helped launch uh, their career or got to get them started, and they, you know, they stabbed me in the back. But uh, then on the other hand, I have so many great people that had worked for me or with me that I'm very proud of, like yeah. Alison Hagendorf, who's still one of my best friends, who's the global head of rock for Spotify. She's like my, you know, my younger sister. Yeah. And she goes whenever she's interviewed and says, Matt was my mentor. And all the people that, that worked for me at Columbia Records, like under me there, you know, one guy's managing Diplo and all these EDM artists. Another one is like the vice president of A&R for, for Capital. I mean, they're all doing great things, and I'm very proud of them, and I'm very happy for them. Uh, but, you know, we all have an experience, I think, somewhere where we give a leg up to somebody, and, you know, they basically shit back on you, and sure. we've all been through it. But, you know, I don't let that taint me. I don't let that... I try to look for the good in people. I mean, there's so much shit out there, and there's so many things to be upset about and let us weigh us down. But fuck that. You know what I mean? I love that. I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. David Bowie did record the song for himself during the 1973 Aladdin Sane Sessions and for the David Live album, but deliberately made his version entirely different in style from Mott the Hoople's version. He had left himself few options, and his slower, more ponderous version was not suitable. So let me ask yeah. you this. Was yeah. there, what was something that you were extremely passionate about, but people completely rejected? Um, oh God, there's gotta be, I mean, there's gotta be so many bands. Um, I mean, you know, there's a band I love right now that I mean is doing really quite well. 
I mean, you know, they've uh, you know they've they've opened for everybody from music. They've gotten like uh, you know legs up from uh, Jimmy Page and Larson Metallica and. Uh, and you know, just so many other uh, people. Jack White. I love a band called Royal Blood. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. from England. Right? Uh, yeah, I love them. Yeah, those two band, drummer, yeah, those right? guys. I love them. And I just, I you know, for me, I just wish more people would listen to them and more people were into them. And I wish alternative radio would really give them a shot. I mean, they play them on active rock radio, but to me, they're an alternative band. They're just heavier. And you know, because the climate is so different now um, uh, in well, alternative radio, I just believe that that band. I wouldn't say people rejected them, but I think that they certainly. They're not getting with. Is this just in America or is this in England as well? Just in America. I mean, in England, people. So the English people have better musical taste than us. Uh, They used to. I think so anymore. I I I just had this. I want to tell you a funny story because you you started this podcast because of an album you and I both love, the Stone Roses album, right? Yeah. Now, I love. There's so many periods of English music that I think are absolutely fantastic, you know? But I mean, out of England recently, I mean, you know, the struts are, ver- are great, and but they're very retro. But they're also, you know, I, I you know, I, I enjoy them. But Royal Blood, I love. But I'm finding that it, you used to be able to find ten bands a year in England that you could just love and embrace every single year. You know, yeah. and I'm talking about all the way back. I mean, to this early '70s through the whole punk era, the new wave era, post punk. You know, the Brit pop era with Oasis and Blur and all those. I mean, there was always something really cool. There was something always new and exciting coming out. I think it's become less and less there now, to be honest with you. And I know I, I don't... Press has more to do with driving um, taste over there than it does in America. Exactly, but why is that? Because I think uh, press, honestly... Is better. I mean, it's changed a lot because, you know, the magazine format, there's great magazines over there like Mojo and Uncut and Q. And, NME. You know, and yeah. NME used to be there. But now the. It's not there anymore. Well, yeah, yeah, now it's a website. So it still exists. Uh, and I used to love the NME and Melody Maker and, and get them every week, uh, you know, when I was younger. And, uh, you know, I was always looking to see what was new. Uh, but, yeah, I just think, um, you know, it, it was interesting. So many bands had to go to England first that were American. To make it like Blondie, they were big there, and then they came back here and uh-huh. became stars. Okay, you know what I mean. And it's the same thing with there's so so many American bands get popular there first, and they come home and they're like, well, what? You know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody knows us. We have to go back to playing like clubs, and over there we're playing arenas. Right. I mean, the Royal Blood are the, because of their first record. I mean, I love them both, but the first one especially, the self-titled Royal Blood album. It's you know, it's like 32 minutes long. It's 10 songs. Yeah. Perfect length. Power. Every song's got an incredible hook in it. It's just, it's all memorable, and they're just it. incredible lives. So, I do love them, but I, I need something else from the UK to come and just it's kick coming. my ass. It's coming, dude. It's, it's got to come. And all right, kick a my couple ass. more, and we'll get you out of yeah, here. I, I could sit here and talk to you all fucking day. Yeah, I love you hanging are, out with you. You are just, you're just the shit, dude. <laughs> oh, so are you, Josh. Thank you, brother. Thank yeah, you. Man. All right, when Bowie first offered this song to Mott the Hoople, they recognized its potential straight away. The band's drummer Dale Griffin is quoted in Rolling Stone magazine's top 500 songs. I'm thinking he wants to give us that. He must be crazy. What is something you've done that has far exceeded your expectations? Um, let me think. I mean, you mean is in my life? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I think everything is, you know, I, I don't, it's not, everything's far exceeded my expectations because I really didn't, I, I, I tried not to have expectations that were too out of control. I definitely would want to shoot high. And yeah. you, like we talked about with the yeah. whole thing of the Gotta rock and roll high. dream, yeah. you have to shoot high. 
I did have that at the same time without having real expectations because I felt that sometimes if you felt felt you had control of certain situations, that's when some the universe proved you 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 know you were wrong. Yeah. But um, I mean, it, it's been a pretty amazing ride for me. I mean, just the fact that you know, like having you know done nightclubs all those years, having having you know done radio and been successful in radio, but still doing it after 35 years, you know, um, and, you know, being on now around the world, I'm on, you know, syndicated and then I'm on all over like the armed forces network. So, and then you've got, you know, I mean, there was no MTV when I was a kid. So the fact that I ended up on there after watching it and, uh, ever thinking that I was going to become a national name because of it as a platform, I never had that expectation, yeah. but man, was I grateful at the way it changed the trajectory of my life. Oh, I can imagine. And then, you know, I've, then I worked at a record company. I mean, there was some, I knew I wanted to do A&R and sign bands and work at a record company. And then I ended up getting to do that at Columbia Records for six years. And I got, I went from senior director, I got promoted to vice president and, and it was a really incredible education. And also, you know, I loved doing that and for a while and, you know, doing morning shows and, and doing morning shows in two of the biggest cities. See, like I did yeah. a morning show in New York city and a morning show in San Francisco. That's also like, you, I mean, it's like, you know, th those are things that people really that work for or their whole life. I mean, it's just for me, like one of the things that's in my book, there's a chapter on me and David Bowie and the fact that he was such an influence on in me as a kid. And then we became friends. Oh, we were wow. met at this dinner and he asked me off the record. He goes, listen, nobody knows yet. I'm going on tour with Nine Inch Nails. I'd love you to give me a list of songs that you think would be great songs that aren't singles. So I made a list for David and he Fuck. did half of them. And then, you know, I went to the rehearsals. Um, you know, and then I, you know, we became friendly and, uh, and then eventually like I ran in again after nine 11, I had the, uh, the, the crazy, uh, misfortune of moving two blocks from ground zero 10 days before uh, on September 1st, 2001, me? I swear to God. Fuck, so me and my wife and my one and a half year old kid were out of there with, this with diapers. Great. Look at yeah. the view, honey. Look at the this view. Ah! And then I look out the window and of course see the second plane hit the building. I Jesus. Mean, but we did get out of there and we were one of the fortunate ones, but, um, you know, I mean, it, what happened was I went to a showcase and a guy taps me on the shoulder and it's David Bowie. He's like, Matt, how you doing, man? And he was asking me what I thought of this whole thick scandal that went down at EMI Music and he was going to get out of his record contract in the Key Man Clause. So he goes, what are you doing tonight? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to go. I'm in a relocation apartment right now. I was going to go back to my wife and kid. He goes, come have dinner with me. So I literally get in the back of a town car with David Bowie. We get, we go. This is like after I'd known him, hadn't seen him in years. Yeah. Um, we go to an Italian restaurant, me and him. Um, and Tony Visconti is the record producer and his, his girlfriend at the time, Christine Young and Bowie's assistant Coco. And we're all, and David's there going, Matt, I insist you, uh, have some wine and you got to tell me your 9-11 story. So I'm sitting there having dinner with Bowie. <laughs> Tony's talking about how he went in and laid down the string tracks on the T-Rex records. We're just hanging out. And then Dave goes to me, I'm going to call you this week. I want you to come in the studio and listen to the new record I'm working on. So I go to Looking Glass Studios owned by Philip Glass. And David sits there with me, and it was such a crazy time because a bunch of his outfits were stolen during the Aladdin Sane tour from the Ziggy era in Portugal off the stage. And Interpol, not the band, but the uh, police, Interpol, yeah. the police, found that someone was selling them on eBay, and they got them back for David. So he Fuck was, yeah. He was so fucking excited. And then we sat there, and he played the original version of Heathen for me, the, the album. And... Uh, you know, and then we hung out, and then Mick Rock came in, the famous rock photographer, who was, of course, legendary. He came in, and we were all just all hanging out. And then David said to me, look, I'm going to call you in about a week. I really want to get together with you and, and pick your brain with some ideas. 
So I'm speaking of appetite for destruction, which you love. Yeah. I, you know, I'm new doing A&R. I'm in the hit factory, the, the studio. And Steve Thompson, who's my friend now, who mixed Appetite for Destruction, the record, is in there. And I'm going in with a... I, I signed a band to a demo deal. Uh, and I was going in there to ask him and talk to him. He was mixing a Wu-Tang Clan album, Iron Flag. And I just said to him... Uh, Hey, Steve, I really want to play something for you, you know? And then all of a sudden, my cell phone rings, and it's David Bowie. So I go, hello? He goes, Matt, David Bowie. And I'm like, what the fuck, Bowie? You should have been like, who? <laughs> yeah. So I'm st- I remember I'm standing over the recording board, right, at, at the Hit Factory in one of the studios. And he goes to me, Matt, what are you doing this week? What are you doing on Wednesday? And like a dumbass, this is like, just comes out of my mouth. I go, oh, Wednesday, you know, we, we have our label meeting at Columbia, like where everybody gets together with the promo and A&R guys. And I just said, and then all of a sudden I hear myself and I go, what the fuck are you what saying? Are what are you doing? saying to David? Yeah. Are you telling David Bowie that if, if Wednesday is the only day that you can meet him, yeah. that you're not going to meet up with David Bowie? I felt like such an idiot, which I was, and uh, (laughs) a fucking moron. I felt so stupid. But then he's like, well, Matt, you know, that's all right. He goes, I'll tell you what. I'm going to email you my address and send a car for you. And at the time, guys, this this was later, a couple weeks later. So I'd moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey, temporarily out of the city because my wife was traumatized by all the bodies falling out of the twin towers. Um, And... uh, I Bowie, it's amazing. He, he sent a car for me. I went to his house and we sat across each other on couches, and he played songs for me. And oh he had man! His, it's, yeah, but but the whole, the story's in the book. But it's pretty amazing because Coco's assistant made him play five songs for me, which he wasn't going to play. And I'm like, David, you got to play it for me. And then like as he's playing it for me, he's starting to second guess himself because I go, David, you have to put this on the album. And then he starts to like, he's starting to, you know, he starts to chain smoke and walk back and forth out on the garden patio and come back in. And a mom wasn't home at that point at, at that time. It was just me and a go-go. And um, who's just taking notes for him. Yeah. And then the song was, I've been waiting for you, a Neil Young cover. And I go, you got to put this on the record. So he ended up putting it on the record. The next one was a song that was nominated for a Grammy, Slow Burn. It wasn't going to be on the record. I look at him and I go, David, you got to put that on the you record. You got to put this on yeah, the record. Dude. So he starts pacing back and forth. You're um, making him second-guess himself now. I mean, that yeah. means he fucking respects you, he really dude. Does. Well, he told me that. I mean, he How was really great, great is that? The kid, dude, as a kid. <laughs> that somebody... kid who made his own Bowie posters, like, you know, with stencils. Yeah. Because, you know, I, you know the, the middle of Circus and Cream magazine, you know, but I would like, I'd take one song and put all the lyrics on a poster. I mean, and then all of a sudden, the same guy that I idolized is asking me for advice is the most Fuck. unbelievable thing. So when you say... Could you, with your 12-year-old self who loved David Bowie and is singing him in your junior high band, would you ever imagine you're going to be sitting he's going to be asking you for advice one day? You would just go. You would just, if you could go ahead in time, you'd just go, what the fuck? What the fuck, dude? You'd go, this is a dream that can't be coming true. Dude, this, this whole interview's been a dream, man. I think we're just going to end right there because yeah. that's a perfect button. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough, Matt. And uh, I'm so happy I got to meet you, and I just know that I'm going to be hanging out with you more. So Absolutely, uh, this we are, is, Josh. This, this is beginning. This is fan-fucking- <laughs> Fantastic, guys. Thanks again. Was that a tea and a flipping a seven two? Zipping him a doll in my country shoes. Hey, child, don't want to stay alive. See, I know words every once in a while. I don't know the full lyrics, but I know words every once in a while. Matt Pinfield, everybody. 
Follow him on Twitter at Matt Pinfield, and you can find him on Instagram at the real Matt Pinfield. He's a panelist on Access TV's The Top Ten Revealed. Watch that. Listen to him on Sirius XM Lithium and Volume. And get his new book, guys. It is fantastic. He gave me a copy of it. I fucking love it. It's called All These Things I've Done, My Insane Improbable Rock Life. I'm also going to be posting his mixtape track listing link, and I am so excited to get that from him because this dude knows so much about music. So to really like get inside his mind, I have a feeling this mixtape is going to be fire and all over the place with different awesome bands and tracks and everything email the podcast at 500 podcast at gmail.com follow me on all social media at josh adam myers i got a few shows coming up guys february 26th it's this tuesday coming up we got shimmy shimmy ya at the comedy store uh it's where comics give away real things from their life after they do a stand-up set you can get tickets at the comedy store's website also march 20th it's the next goddamn comedy jam. It's at the Roxy. It's one of my favorite things in the world. If you don't live in L.A., fly to Los Angeles and get tickets to the goddamn comedy jam. For all things 500, go to the500podcast.com. And please subscribe on your favorite platform to listen to the podcast. Rate, review, do all that stuff. Remember what I said at the beginning? 24-hour Instagram ad. Take a screenshot of the way you're listening to the podcast. Post it on your Instagram stories. Tag me, at Josh Adam Myers. Hashtag the 500 podcast. Hashtag Fleece Army. Guys, we have a Patreon. Get the podcast a day earlier. Get some podcast stuff that I recorded a while ago about sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, with some incredible comedians. That was like, that wasn't a failed podcast. I just came up with this idea and I was like, fuck it, man. But we've got like 10 episodes, so we're going to be posting all of those. Me and Morty are coming up with a podcast to give you guys that's only going to be exclusive for the Patreon people. And most importantly, you're supporting. Support, guys. We need it, man. I love you. You get the podcast a day early on Record Store Tuesdays, but also I'm going to throw in a Fleece Army t-shirt. We're creating them right now. They're dope. So get involved, guys. And you can find the Patreon at the500podcast.com backslash club. Do it for me because I do not want to live above this woman, Paula, anymore. We don't get along, and she hates me. So we listen to Mott the Hoople from 1972. Now, here is an artist that is directly influenced by this album. From New York City's, we have Days Rock with his new single, Out of My Mind. If you're in a band and you were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. And make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. I want to help artists get their music out there. So guys, send your music. I want to fucking help you, man, because as this takes off, you get it played here. You might sell some albums. Next week is Gang of Four Week with their 1979 debut album, Entertainment. And let me tell you guys, it is fire. So start listening because y'all got some homework to do. Stay fleecy, y'all. King of fleece, no mas.
Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh revisiting classic material talking about the new classics um all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speaker's Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Next Chapter Podcasts.